Good morning. Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Let me read it as we begin. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the, are the called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen, the things that are not that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, <laughs> boast in the Lord. Pray with me. Dear Father, we, we ask as always that it would be your words and not mine that you would impress upon the hearts of your redeemed and of any who don't know you. We ask you to make us hear your clear declarations about the things that men exalt and the things that you declare to be worthy of praise so that we will exalt only the one who is worthy. For Jesus' sake, and in his holy name we pray. Amen. What kinds of things do prideful people brag about? Well, it turns out they've always been pretty much the same. <laughs> I'm going to read a passage that was written more than 500 years before Jesus came the first time. It's from the book of Jeremiah, and it is powerfully connected with our passage here in 1 Corinthians 1. In fact, at the very end of this chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul will paraphrase the verses, something in the verses I'm about to read. This is Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. 
But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Those two verses in Jeremiah present a showdown of sorts between the favorite boasts of the ungodly and the one legitimate boast of the godly. If you're too young to have watched any, any Westerns, just think of the word showdown as a shootout between two enemies in which the loser dies and the winner lives. The passage presents three of the most prominent boasts of ungodly men and women, and it commands the people of God to abandon all such boasts. And, and the three prominent bragging points of, of the ungodly are wisdom, might, and riches. Wisdom, might, and riches. I think we'd all agree that those are still among the most common boasts of human beings. Superior wisdom, wealth, power over others, which might include physical strength or the kinds of control that wisdom and wealth are believed to provide. And then, of course, people brag about all the accomplishments that they're convinced they have brought about through those other superior attributes. After commanding the Judahites not to boast in any of those things that the world exalts, God declares through Jeremiah that the one and only legitimate boast of any human being is that he or she understands and knows Yahweh, the one true God, that he is the one who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. Those things come from him. Our passage this morning is about how a person gets moved from empty, man-centered boasting to that one legitimate boast in the knowledge of God. And as we'll see, for everyone who has come to know God, all the credit for that transformation goes to God and not to man. We're going to look at the showdown and the victory, the word of the cross versus the wisdom of the world. Much like those two verses in Jeremiah 9 that I just read, our passage in 1 Corinthians 1 sets before us a showdown between the things that the world deems to be desirable and worthy of boasting and the things that God declares to be desirable and worthy of boasting. To be more specific, it's a showdown between the word of the cross and the wisdom of the world. The very first thing that Paul says about the word of the cross in verse 18 is that it is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verse 24, Paul clarifies who's in that, in that second group. <clears throat> Uh, let me let me add something here. It's important for us to recognize that Paul presents that declaration 
in verse 18, not as something that's true at some level or that's true some of the time, but it's true <laughs> absolutely. It is always true. To those who are heading toward eternal death, the word of the cross is foolishness. But to those who are heading toward eternal life, the word of the cross is the power of God. In verse 24, Paul clarifies who's in that second group, and that helps us understand who's in the first group. He says, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the second group, those who recognize the gospel, the word of the cross, as the power of God and the wisdom of God, that group consists in verse 18 of us who are being saved and in verse 24 of those who are the called. That's the same group. If you look through Paul's letters at how he uses the term called, you'll find that he speaks of God's work of salvation in this sequence. First, God chooses and predestines. And that happens, it happened before God even created the universe. Then at the time that God determines, God calls and justifies freely as a gift. There's more to God's work of salvation, sanctification and glorification, but I want to bring us up to that point of the calling because that's what, that's what Paul uh, is focused on right here. In Galatians 2, as in the opening verses of this letter, when Paul speaks of God's calling of every believer, including himself, he's talking about the point in time at which God opened the unbeliever's eyes and ears to receive and to believe the good news of Jesus Christ purely by God's grace. Here, when he refers to those who are perishing, I believe Paul is including every person who has not yet come to trust in Jesus Christ. And that includes many who will one day come to faith, but haven't yet. Thanks entirely to the grace of God, some will be moved from that first group to that second group before they take their final breath on this earth. And that, that has everything to do with why God has left you and me here. What is it about the word of the cross that makes it foolishness to the world? Well, a moment ago, I likened the, the showdown here to a high noon shootout in which the loser dies and the winner lives. But one of the things that makes the word of the cross, the gospel, a special kind of foolishness to the world is that the winner had to die in order to be victorious. And all who would share in that victory have to die as well. For most of humanity, that, uh, that could only be called defeat. In fact, without a miraculous work of God in the heart of a man or woman or child, there's no possible way that the cross of Jesus Christ will look like anything but an epic failure, a terrible tragedy. Think about it. If you're convinced that things like wisdom and power and influence and wealth and winning are the only things that are worthy of boasting? 
What are you going to conclude about a man who claims to be the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, but who, during his rather short earthly life, was persecuted and despised by the very men whom everyone considered to be wise, powerful, influential, and wealthy? A man who was arrested, mocked, spat upon, tortured, and then put on display alongside other despised criminals in the most barbaric, dehumanizing, and humiliating form of execution known in that day, which was crucifixion. And then somehow between the day that he was crucified and buried and the morning of the third day after that, his body disappeared from his tomb. All of those who actually possessed wisdom and power and wealth as reasonable people measure such things said that his followers had stolen the body to perpetrate a hoax, something about a resurrected Savior. What if you were then told by that man's followers that trusting him as your Savior is the one and only way you will ever be acceptable inside of the God who made you? Would you consider that man and his followers to be wise or foolish, powerful or weak, worthy of your attention or not worthy? Perhaps you can see at least part of why the word of the cross is hard for most people to embrace. <laughs> now, what if I said that that's not actually the foolishness that Paul is most focused on when he says here that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing? Because of how Paul introduces and concludes this passage, and because of much of what he says in the passage, <clears throat> I'm convinced that he's talking about a much more onerous and intolerable foolishness to the mind of this world. And that is the foolishness of becoming convinced that your own personal worth is actually about Jesus and not at all about you. It's a foolishness that puts an end to all boasting in men and thus to all boasting in self. To the man-exalting mindset of this world, there can be no more threatening or intolerable foolishness than that. Paul set the stage for this passage in the previous passage that we looked at last time, where he rebuked the Corinthian saints for the divisions that had arisen among them. The Christians in Corinth were creating schisms within the body of Christ that were all about the superiority of certain men. One said, I am of Paul. Another said, I am of Apollos. Another, I am of Peter. And yet another, I am of Christ. In some cases, those allegiances to one particular man were all about who was the most skillful and persuasive speaker, orator. For others, those allegiances were about which man had baptized them. But in verse 17, Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made 
void. The very next thing that Paul says is in verse 18, the first verse of this morning's passage. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. It's the same word for cleverness that he just mentioned when he said, I didn't come in cleverness of speech. Then he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul is making it clear that the reason he did not come to the Corinthians with cleverness of speech is because he refused to have any part in their exaltation of men. Among those who have not yet been called to faith in Jesus by God, Paul identifies two groups, Jews and Greeks, which by Greeks he means Gentiles. He says in verse 22 that Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. To the Jews a stumbling block. Paul said the Jews wanted signs. Jesus gave them plenty of signs, didn't he? In John chapter 20, verse 30, John says that Jesus did many other signs besides the ones that he recorded in his gospel, and that's quite a few. <laughs> in the last verse of that same gospel, John says that if he had written down in detail all of the miraculous things that Jesus did during his three-year earthly ministry, he supposed that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. Jesus gave the Jews plenty of signs, but not the signs that they were looking for. See, they didn't care about signs that proved that Jesus could heal their diseases and cast out demons and turn water into wine. And they certainly didn't care about signs that proved that Jesus was the one who had the power to forgive sins because they didn't see themselves as sinners. They considered themselves to be righteous. The signs they wanted to see from the promised Messiah were the ones that would prove that he could secure their place and their nation so that they could be the wise and powerful rulers over all. The rulers, they were convinced God had promised them that they, they were destined to be. To the Jews, righteousness was supposed to be about the works and the merit of men. About things that men could boast in. As for the knowledge of God that Jeremiah said was man's only legitimate boast, the Jews believed and happily told everybody that they already possessed the knowledge of the one true God. They believed that the knowledge of God that they had achieved through their diligent study had made them great law keepers and had imparted to them wisdom and wealth and influence over many people. That was their boast. 
To the Jews, the stumbling block of the gospel wasn't merely that their long-promised king could never be arrested or mocked or killed. The much bigger stumbling block was that their position in the eyes of both God and men had to be about their merit, their righteousness. So to the Jews, the, the gospel was a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it was foolishness. It was the antithesis of what the Greeks exalted most, and that was the wisdom of men. The wisdom of men. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Hymenaeus, Pythagoras, ancient Greece was the headquarters of wisdom in the known world. In Acts chapter 17, Luke tells us that the Greeks would regularly gather at the Areopagus in Athens to listen all day, day after day, to the declarations of learned and skillful orators. They would happily listen to anyone who had anything new to tickle their ears and to give them something new to talk about. But the last thing in the world <laughs> that they were willing to hear was that it's not possible for men to possess true wisdom through their own reasoning. And that's exactly what Paul said to them. That which you worship in ignorance, I now proclaim to you. Paul told them that the God in whom we live and move and exist, the only God that's real, had called all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed one through whom he will judge the world. <laughs> the truth has been made known and it comes from God. The only absolute truth that the Greeks embraced was that wisdom was the domain of men. For anyone to declare that wisdom does not and cannot come from men, that was absolute intolerable foolishness. The great offense of the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles was that the word of the cross puts to death the boasting of men. That's exactly where Paul goes in this passage. He tells us that God has done battle against all that men find to boast about, and the only one left standing at the end of that battle is God. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. I committed the, the last two verses of chapter 1 to memory many years ago because they capture both the offense and the perfection of the gospel in a way that answers a thousand questions for me. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 30 and 31. But by His doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Beloved, here's why I have never doubted my salvation since God first brought me to faith in Jesus as a young man. And and the reason I've never doubted is because everything about my salvation is God's doing and not mine. What do I have to boast about? What do I have to doubt? How is it that I came into eternal union with Jesus Christ? God did it. How is it that wisdom has any place at all in my experience? Jesus has become wisdom to me. I have nothing to do with that. How is it that I stand righteous in the eyes of the one perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God? Jesus has become my only righteousness in the eyes of God. He took my sin upon himself and he paid that debt forever at the cross And then he clothed me. He covered me in his righteousness. It's not mine. It's his. I had nothing to do with it. How is it that I have received sanctification? That I've been set apart as holy to the living God? It's because Jesus has become my sanctification. I had nothing to do with it. How is it that I have been redeemed? bought out of slavery to sin to become a bondservant of the living God? It's because Jesus has become my redemption. It's his blood that bought me for himself. I had nothing to do with it. How is it that I have come to personally know God, which Jeremiah said is the only legitimate boast for any man? Simple. Because God made me know him in Christ and through his revealed word. I had nothing to do with it. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The only thing that is worthy of man's boasting is that which belongs to and proceeds from God. I want to come back to a verse that I skipped earlier because it beautifully explains something that perplexes many Christians. That's verse 21. Why is the gospel of Jesus Christ so inscrutable to most of humanity? Why is it such an enormous hurdle for men to hear and believe the good news of atonement, forgiveness, and eternal life in Jesus Christ and to recognize it recognize it as the truth? The clear and straightforward answer that Paul gives us right here is that it's because that's exactly how God intended it to be. It is by God's design that the word of the cross is foolishness to this world. And that's no small point, beloved. Verse 21 of this passage is dynamite. Listen as I read it again. For since... In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. 
God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now go back to Jeremiah 9 for just a moment. What did God say through Jeremiah was the one legitimate ground of boasting for a man? Just this one thing. Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Paul says that by God's design, by God's wisdom, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, could not come to know God. Yet the knowledge of God is the only boastworthy thing that a man can ever possess. Here's the offense and the beauty of the gospel, beloved. The one and only thing that will ever bring worth to man is the intimate personal knowledge of God, and no man, woman, or child will ever possess that blessed knowledge except by God's doing. <laughs> Men will never be able to boast in the only thing that's worthy of their boast, the knowledge of God. Sinful, rebellious human beings who have been alienated and separated from God have absolutely no way ever to come to personally know the holy and righteous God through their own devices. Isaiah 55 says that his ways are as far above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. We can't get the knowledge of God by our devices. It can never happen. Even the Old Testament picture of the, of the way of access for men to draw near to God even the picture came exclusively from the mind of God. Under the law of Moses, where did every detail for the design of the tabernacle come from? From the mind of men? No, from the mind of God. Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, God said to Moses, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Every detail of the tabernacle, which was the place for men to draw near to God, came from God, not from men. And where did the skill to build that place of access that God designed and revealed, where did that skill come from? Well, I'll let you read Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. That's where he tells us the answer to that question. In summary, God, by the work of his Holy Spirit, put the skill in the heart of every man who touched anything associated with the construction of the tabernacle. The tabernacle structure, the utensils, the priestly garments, even the incense and the oils that were used in the tabernacle. All of it came from God to Israel by God's doing. Okay, so where did the knowledge and awareness of God's plan to send his son into the world to eternally save those who trust in him, to eternally judge those who don't, and to rule over his redeemed creation forever, where, where did that knowledge come from? 
Did men just figure it out? <laughs> no. That could never happen. People have been contriving all kinds of ways to make things good between us and God ever since God ran us out of his garden because of Adam's rebellion. Even though most people don't believe that ever happened. And every single one of those ways, those supposed ways for men to be acceptable to God, has been an absolute epic failure that has accomplished nothing more than to confirm the just condemnation of all mankind. Why didn't God help along any of those efforts so that the people who zealously wanted to find a way to know God and to be pleasing to God could reach that goal? The answer is simple, and it's right here. Only God can make men know God. Men can't get to that. The insanity of the gospel, brothers and sisters, the insanity of the gospel to the minds of those who are perishing is by God's design. We need to understand this because it has everything to do with our assignment during our short time in these mortal bodies. The gospel is supposed to be foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul says God is delighted. He is well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He is he is pleased that the truth concerning Jesus strikes this world as nonsense. God saves lost sinners not by making the gospel easy for lost sinners to embrace, but through the foolishness of the message preached. If the gospel that you and I proclaim does not flatly contradict every concept of wisdom and righteousness and acceptability to God that men have ever come up with, then what we're calling the gospel is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be big boys and girls and own up to this dirt simple reality. Everything about the message that God has commissioned you and me to preach to this world is an offense to this world by God's design. If it doesn't offend, it cannot save. If it matches up in any way with any of the religious systems that men have devised, it cannot save. We don't need to find ways to make the message we preach kind of like what some lost person already believes. We don't need to find common ground between the religions that men have contrived and the truth that is revealed by God because there isn't any common ground. Beloved, the ramifications of this are important beyond what I can adequately declare to you. Brothers and sisters, we need to stop trying to make the gospel sound reasonable to dead people. It's not supposed to. The one and only person who can make that happen is the one who made them. There can be no greater foolishness for redeemed children of God than for us to withhold 
or to water down the word of the cross in an effort to avoid offending this dying world, because the gospel is supposed to offend this dying world. If we could transport the Apostle Paul out of first century Rome and, and teach him to speak English, even if we were able to bring him up to speed on everything there is to know about iPhones and the internet and representative democracy and free market economics and the history of the Western world in the modern era. Do you think Paul's gospel message would be different in any way that matters than the message that he wrote down in all of his letters nearly 2,000 years ago? The message that he got from the resurrected Christ? No. His gospel would still be about the long-promised Christ, the Son of God, who humbled himself by taking on our humanness, who lived a sinless life, who was put to death in our place to pay our sin debt to God, was buried, and was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the prophets foretold, and who appeared to many, including Paul, before ascending back to the glory that is rightfully his. The gospel that you and I would hear from Paul's lips today, right here in Richardson, would be every bit as foolish to this world and every bit as powerful to save your neighbor or your co-worker as it was in Paul's day. That is the gospel that we must proclaim, beloved. It hasn't changed a bit. I'm not saying that it's of no use to us <laughs> as Christians to find familiar cultural reference points that, that might serve as tools to relate the gospel to lost people in our present day. What I am saying, what I am absolutely convinced that God is saying, is that those tools are not determinative. God has lots of tools. Something can be helpful without being determinative. What matters is the message of Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead. There's one more key point here that we must not miss. It'll be even more in focus in next Sunday's passage, but it's at issue here and it's very important. The word of the cross that we bear is a proclamation that comes in words. The gospel that we bear in this world is not a friendship. It is not a trust relationship. It is a message. It's the same message that Paul in Romans 1.16 declares to be the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The message. Because the word of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Based on this amazing counterintuitive passage that turns the upside down right side up, I'm going to propose a profile for every useful ambassador of Christ. Sort of a job description for you and me. If you are boasting in the right things, <laughs> if you 
are bearing the message that God has given to you. Your words and the way that you present them will always put the focus on Jesus and never on yourself. You will care little about method or packaging or political or cultural sensitivities. Note that I said little. I didn't say you will care not at all. You will present the word of the cross early in your interactions with unbelievers instead of withholding the good news until you've had time and opportunity to, to develop a trusted friendship. You will expect that your message will be rejected as intolerable foolishness by most of those who hear it. If it isn't rejected by most, it's the wrong message. The offense in your interactions with unbelievers will be the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will not be your views about things that are going to perish when the world perishes. You won't make a big enough deal out of those things for them to ever get in the way of the simplicity and purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your personal weaknesses and shortcomings and inadequacies will not discourage you from boldly proclaiming the good news of forgiveness and eternal life in Christ. Because you'll know, you'll know that God has chosen the weak and despised things like you and me to shame the things that this world exalts. You will know that your only adequacy is Christ in you. And that's more than enough. You will proclaim Christ fully expecting God to save some through you, whether you get to see those people saved or not. You will know that God is already working to, to call the hearts of some to faith in Christ through you. When Jesus called his disciples, he said to them that, at the end of his time with them in John 15, he said, I called you so that you would bear much fruit and that your fruit would remain. That's why God called you and me as well. It is God's divine calling of the people to whom you preach the gospel in his perfect timing that saves them. It is not your perfect timing. It is not the cleverness of your speech that will make them hear and believe. It is the work of the Holy Spirit and only His work. Finally, you will know as an ambassador of Christ that it is entirely by God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus. He is your only wisdom. He is your only righteousness. He is your only holiness. He is your perfect redemption. You will delight in making that reality known to both unbelievers and saints. That's your job description and mine, beloved. Let's pray. Loving Father, what liberation and joy it is for us to know that every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. 
We confess to you, Lord, that in Christ alone is all wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Our only boast, dear Lord, is in you because of our glorious Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.